The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Welcome to School Fox. Here are your headlines. Official notes released by the White House reveals President Trump pressed Ukraine's leader to look into Democratic presidential candidate Joe Biden and his son in a phone call back in July. U.S. stocks jump as President Trump says a China trade deal could come sooner than expected, while the U.S. inks a limited agreement with Japan. And an unrepentant Boris Johnson faces a chorus of angry MPs calling for his resignation after Parliament is convened for the first time since the Prime Minister's suspension was ruled unlawful as he challenges opposition parties to a public vote. If honourable and right honourable members opposite so disagreed with this government's commitment to leaving on October the 31st, they had a very simple remedy at their disposal, did they not? They could have voted for a general election. The ECB's German board member Sabine Lattenschlager resigns after questioning the central bank's latest stimulus measures. President Trump asked Ukrainian counterpart Volodymyr Zelensky to investigate Democratic rival Joe Biden and his son, according to official White House notes of a phone call between the two leaders. The document reveals the president pushed Zelensky to, quote, do whatever you can with the U.S. Attorney General to look into the Bidens. The release of the note comes after U.S. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi launched an impeachment inquiry into the president following whistleblower complaints over the phone conversation. President Trump said he placed no pressure on Zelensky during a meeting with the Ukrainian leader on the sidelines of the U.N. General Assembly. Zelensky's reiterated the president's comments, adding that the two had a, quote, Good phone call. NBC's Peter Alexander filed this report. Thank you. Late tonight, President Trump firing back. No push, no pressure, no nothing. It's all a hoax, folks. It's all a big hoax. The president defiant following the White House's release of this five-page memo detailing his July phone call with Ukraine's president, Volodymyr Zelensky. It's a joke. Impeachment for that? When you have a wonderful meeting or you have a wonderful phone conversation. But Democrats say the president's words amount to an impeachable offense. I'm glad the president released this transcript, but it is absolutely devastating. If the president gets away with this, I'm not sure what checks and balances remain. That call begins with President Trump congratulating Zelensky on his election victory. The president, who at the time was withholding hundreds of millions of dollars of military aid, emphasizes that the United States is very, very good to Ukraine. When Zelensky says he's thankful for the U.S.'s military support and expresses his desire to buy more military equipment, President Trump says, I would like you to do us a favor, though, asking for Ukraine to investigate matters involving the 2016 election meddling inquiry. The president saying, I would like to have the attorney general, William Barr, call you or your people, and I would like to get to the bottom of it. Notes of that call um, indicate the president of the United States shaking down a foreign leader, essentially undermining the national security of this country uh, for a personal political gain. Tonight, Democrats zeroing in on the next portion of the conversation where the president asks Zelensky for an investigation into the Bidens. 
President Trump says there's a lot of talk about Biden's son, that Biden stopped the prosecution, and a lot of people want to find out about that. So whatever you can do with the attorney general would be great. Biden went around bragging that he stopped the prosecution. So if you can look into it, it sounds horrible to me. The president is referencing then-Vice President Biden's push for the Ukrainian government to fire its top prosecutor, who had investigated a Ukrainian company that gave Biden's son Hunter a paid position on its board. But that prosecutor was widely viewed as weak on corruption, and there's no evidence Biden did anything wrong. The Justice Department says the president never spoke to Barr about the request. You take a look at that call, it was perfect. I didn't do it. There was no quid pro quo. Still, Democrat Adam Schiff argues the memo is far more damaging than he expected. What those notes reflect is a classic mafia-like shakedown of a foreign leader. But tonight, Ukraine's president with President Trump today says that's not how he viewed the conversation. Have you felt any pressure from President Trump to investigate Joe Biden and Hunter Biden? We spoke about many things, and I, so, so I think... And you read it that nobody pushed it, pushed me, yes. In other words, no pressure. And tonight, Republicans are defending the president. I think it's very appropriate for the president of the United States to suggest that you got a corruption problem. From my point of view, to impeach any president over a phone call like this would be insane. Now the president facing the prospect of impeachment over a call he made the day after special counsel Robert Mueller testified. I thought we won. I thought it was dead. It was dead. The Mueller report, no obstruction, no collusion. Meanwhile, NBC News sources say the whistleblower complaints over the phone call between President Trump and Zelensky has been declassified with minimal redactions. The document has not been made public, but is expected to be released sometime today. The NBC News reports that 219 House members, including 218 Democrats and one independent, have confirmed they back starting the process of impeaching President Trump. Let's bring in Callum Birch, who is global economist at the Economist Intelligence Unit. And Callum, we saw uh, effective details from that phone call that took place between the president and uh, the Ukrainian president, Zelensky. And effectively what it showed us was that there was a warning that was raised about uh, some of the issues that have transpired between the two countries. We've seen how much influence the U.S. has had in Ukraine. And there was a reminder in that phone conversation about the role of the U.S. on the ground in Ukraine. What do you make of the pressure that's been applied by the U.S.? president in one phone call because we just heard in the clip can you really impeach a president on the back of a phone call well it is unprecedented territory um, so the kind of the inquiry will have its work cut out for it to establish this of course the bar for impeachment is set at evidence of high crimes and misdemeanors which is by nature a slightly vague term but for which the bar for support has been set very high um, so the committee will have to to lay out whether or not there's evidence of so they say high crimes and misdemeanors. Now, we can clearly see by reading the text that there is kind of a, a, a link between the U.S.'s role in supporting Ukraine with military funding, with other economic funding more generally to support that uh, kind of the general economic stability there. And then and this favor, though, I mean, the language is, is very specific that there's a tie, even though there's no direct quid pro quo, give me this and therefore I will make sure that we maintain aid for you. Um, 
but at this, I mean, there's just, there's, there's no way that we kind of skate out of this with no serious allegations. It's very clear, I think, of the pressure that was implied, despite his, his, his varied protests, so there was not. It's essentially a political gamble on the Democrat side, right? Because, as you said, there's no binding evidence from the rough transcript that was released yesterday that actually links the aid to uh, applying pressure on the Ukrainian president to launch that investigation. So even if you were a Republican lawmaker sitting on the fence wanting to get more evidence, there isn't binding evidence as of yet. So presumably the calculation from the Dem side is that the revelations from this report will be damaging for Trump going into 20, 2020, mm -hmm. damaging enough to actually cost him the election rather than his presidency. seat. Possibly, yeah. And I think essentially we may not need to see a, an explicit quid quo quo to to necessarily have legs to this kind of, to the investigation. But it is a question of whether or not a sitting president invited a foreign power to produce evidence that would, against his political rival, that would impact the outcome of the election in 2020. This kind of inviting a foreign power into the election is exactly what Pelosi mentioned in her speech and kind of violating the oath of office to preserve the, the sovereignty of the United States. Um, but definitely the political calculus for Democrats has changed. We, again, we saw Pelosi being very cautious uh, up until really two days ago to look past some of the potential evidence of obstruction of justice, for example, that could have been the outset for this inquiry, um, but instead decided that it would have been more politically damaging to Democrats than it would have been to Republicans and wouldn't ultimately change Trump's election chances. Now, I think still it's unlikely he'll be removed from office because any at this moment as support for him lies and as we saw in the recent comments um, the senate will continue to vote in his favor well, republicans in the senate about 20 senators to cross the the floor and vote against him uh, i gather right. for impeachment to succeed right. i just want to get to the strategy because what jumps out the difference this time around versus the russia investigation it felt like there was so much stalling deflecting a very smoke and mirrors game that was played around the strategy of revolutions around russia but in this particular case, it's almost like the evidence has been coughed up very quickly. We've seen the summary. There's been a whistleblower um, statement as well. So effectively, the evidence presented to the public very, very quick in a 24-hour period. What do you make mm -hmm. of the strategy then from the White House to try and sort of clear the decks as quickly as possible? Well, it's true, given all of the kind of stonewalling we've seen so far with various kind of testimonies that were demanded before Congress related to the Russia investigation, it's true there's been I mean, well, at the same time in the last you know, month since that initial whistleblower complaint was lodged, by the time that it went to the various national security officials and then was um, prevented from being released to Congress along the normal line. So this is why we're seeing it come to light, is that there were, was an initial kind of stonewalling on the part of the White House to try to keep this from the public eye. Um, but really, I think it is a clearer case. So it's both, we can see that the White House and President Trump thinks that there's not enough of a, again, the linked quid pro quo that would, that would establish evidence of misconduct. And I think Democrats have also changed their calculus. This is a clearer, more, more kind of straightforward case than the murky Russia investigation. Was there evidence of intent to interfere with US elections, evidence of direct collusion with the Trump campaign, and all the various investigations that were tied to that? It's messy and it's confusing, whereas this is a lot more clear cut. Question, though, because uh, I was just looking at some of the numbers. Trump actually has had a huge fundraising day in the last couple of days. He's raised over $1 million in the first three hours since the investigation was launched and $5 million in one full day. So it seems as though 
Whatever the Democrat strategy is, it may actually backfire because it's invigorating Trump's base. And I think that's why Pelosi and many Democrats had been so hesitant before, because from the very beginning, President Trump has used the message of the witch hunt and him being targeted unfairly by political opponents and by the media to rally his base around him. And it's been a very effective message. As we see, again, it's being effective in this case as well. Um, I think, again, the political calculus has changed for Democrats. This will still rally President Trump's base around him. That won't change. And I would expect him to continue raising money for the 2020 campaign in a record-setting way in the next little while. But I think that the issue now is that Democrats think it won't be so kind of exclusively damaging for themselves, but that Trump is now at risk of losing not his core base, I don't think they're going anywhere, but the kind of centrist or apolitical voters who aren't necessarily very heavily party affiliated, um, who he will absolutely rely on. His base has been extremely loyal, but it's about 40 to 40% of the population or kind of survey respondents. And that's not enough to get him elected president. He needs to appeal to that kind of centrist or apolitical voting base. Um, and therefore, his campaign has been 100% base. He has appealed to the people who, whose kind of campaign issues, if you will, or social values, he already carried on in his first campaign. And he's just doubling down on that message. Kellen, thank you very much for that. Uh, we'll continue the conversation on some of the trade issues and Brexit in just a bit. Kellen Birch with us, global economist at the Economist Intelligence Unit. And if we look at how the markets reacted during former U.S. President Bill Clinton's impeachment hearings in the late 90s, you can head to our website. That's CNBC.com. Now, meanwhile, President Trump has said a trade deal with China could happen, quote, sooner than you think. The president claimed Beijing wants to make a deal as China's, quote, losing jobs because their supply chain is going to hell. Trump also hailed the impact of tariffs. Right now, China is way behind us and they'll never catch us if we have smart leadership way behind. We've picked up trillions of dollars and they've lost trillions of dollars and they want to make a deal very badly. And it could happen. Could happen. It could happen. It could happen sooner than you think. Meanwhile, the United States and Japan have signed a limited trade deal on the sidelines of the UN General Assembly meeting. The agreement includes a cut in tariffs on U.S. farm goods and Japanese machine tools. However, the deal does not cover autos, which makes up the largest area of trade between the two nations. U.S. Trade Representative Robert Lighthizer said both sides would commence those discussions in April. Well, Karen, the market seems to be cheered by the news that, that we were just talking about. And you can see right behind me, actually, it was a very good session for Wall Street. All of the majors ending up the day in the green, led by gains in the tech sector and Nasdaq up more than 1%. This is actually the best day for Wall Street in the last couple of weeks. Dow and S&P yet again back within 2% of their all-time record highs. So to continue to perform, a couple of catalysts as we were talking about. One is that the, the president said a U.S.-China trade deal could arrive sooner than expected. He made those comments on the sideline of the U.N. General Assembly yesterday. Also, he later said that Japan and U.S. had reached that initial trade agreement. But then also coming back uh, to the impeachment investigation, uh, investors were pouring through the rough transcript of that conversation between President Trump and the Ukrainian president and were perhaps a little bit relieved that there was not an explicit promise from President, from president uh, Trump uh, to the Ukrainian president uh, in exchange for information 
on Biden. So perhaps that give, gave somewhat of a lift to the markets in yesterday's session, a session of green. I should tell you, in terms of the sectors, eight out of 11 of the S&P sectors were positive, as I mentioned, led by tech. The tech index was up about 1%, and the tech sector in particular was up about one and a quarter of a percentage point. So much more of a positive spin for Wall Street. Asian markets, however, were a little bit mixed, actually. You would have thought with the positive news from the US about the potential of a trade deal that the Shanghai Composite would trade more positive not the case. We have Shanghai trading down 0.7% in the session. Uh, Hang Seng in Hong Kong trading slightly above the green, the flat line, I mean. And then uh, Nikkei also trading at green. We've pared back some of the gains earlier on in the session. Nikkei as well comforted by the fact that the US and Japan have signed uh, the first steps of their trade deal. But crucially, as we just mentioned, doesn't include autos. So giving some relief to the Japanese index there. As for Europe, we had very torrid session yesterday. It's been a very tricky week for European indices. And today you can see that uh, pretty much all of the opening calls are around flattish. We've got CAC 40 up about three points, FTSE 100 down three as well. So European investors not taking a lot of heart uh, from Wall Street, but still early hours. We've got a couple more hours before the market opens. Jamala, thank you. Coming up on the show, British Prime Minister Boris Johnson tussles with lawmakers as Parliament is reconvened. The latest on that after the break. A CNBC signature event. East Tech West. CNBC's exclusive invitation-only retreat returns to Nansha, Guangzhou, China in 2019. We explore all things tech from artificial intelligence to 5G. Join the world's most prolific investors, inventors and entrepreneurs as they share their stories and celebrate innovation. Visit EastTechWest.com for an application to attend. Welcome back to Squawkbox. British Prime Minister Boris Johnson was defiant in the face of furious lawmakers as the House of Commons sat for the first time since his prorogation was overturned by the Supreme Court. The UK leader re repeated calls for an election and again said he would refuse to ask the EU for another Brexit extension, referring to legislation that forces him to do that as, quote, surrender act. Now, the opposition Labour leader, Jeremy Corbyn, said the Prime Minister showed contempt for democracy. Here he is, forced back to this House to rightfully face the scrutiny he tried to avoid. With no shred of remorse or humility and, of course, no substance whatsoever. So let's see if he will answer some questions. Does the Prime Minister agree with his Attorney General that the government got it wrong or with the leader of the House that the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court committed a constitutional coup? 
This, Mr Speaker, is a vital question about whether the government respects the judiciary or not. Well, Willem joins us now. Willem, it was quite an energetic session yesterday. Um, but what was interesting about it is how defiant the government was. Uh, did not seem to show any remorse whatsoever over this prorogation. Well, that wasn't just... Uh Boris Johnson that was defiant, of course, you know, yeah. members of his cabinet throughout the day had been uh, very defiant and unwilling to acknowledge responsibility for the situation that the parliament now finds itself in, having returned from a prorogation that's been nullified. I watched hours and hours and hours of this. It was incredibly angry inside that chamber. And I just wanted to give you guys a quick taste of what we saw from the Prime Minister and what we saw from backbenchers. Justine Greening, she was a member of his party till three weeks ago. She asked this question. The Prime Minister's talked about bringing a deal back to this House. Um, he's also talked about his respect for the law and agreeing to make sure that he complies with the law. So can I ask him to be absolutely explicit? that if he does bring a deal back to this House, and this House does what its right is, perhaps, and rejects it, that he will respect that, but he will also respect the so-called Ben Bill that this House has passed, and then ask for an extension. And can I just say to him that continuing to call a bill that this House has passed a surrender bill is deeply disrespectful to this place and he has said he must respect the Supreme Court ruling and I would simply ask him to respect the decisions of this House too. I'm, I, I must say to the Right Honourable Lady and, and my friend the Right, the right Honourable Lady who I've worked with over, happily over many years that actually I do think that the Surrender Act has done grave damage. What it would try to do, I speak as somebody, and I speak as somebody who has to sit in. The order, order, can I have a, appeal to colleagues in all parts of the House to calm down and let's have the exchanges? Everybody must speak in terms that he or she thinks fit, and I know we're all conscious of the premium that is placed by Erskine May on moderation and good humour in the use of parliamentary language. The Prime Minister. Mr. S Mr. Speaker, I, I repeat uh, that the experience of negotiating with our European friends and partners over the last few weeks has, I'm afraid, confirmed me in my view that the Surrender Act has made it, has made it more difficult for us to get a deal. And that is the sad truth, because they, they hear, what they hear is a parliament that is determined not just to stop a no-deal Brexit, that is not their intention, their intention is to stop any kind of deal at all. That is what they want to do. And I can tell my, uh, my right honourable friend that we will come out of the European Union on October the 31st. So the really big point from what he says there is that he will leave on October 31st, we've heard that again and again and again, and that he would essentially ignore the legislation that has already been passed by the House. A more explicit moment came at the very end of the evening. A, a Labour MP asked him if he doesn't get the deal through the House or a no deal through this House by October 19th, will he seek an extension from the EU to the 31st of January? That's part of the legislation that's on the statute books. He answered with one word, no. So... 
Going forward, what are the opposition parties going to do? We heard from Labour. They want a general election. Jeremy Corbyn very explicit about this, but only once he sees that extension signed and codified and solidified. The Liberal Democrats, not a clear position as one of the larger parties in opposition. They've said, some of them, they want to see Article 50, the process by which Brexit is governed, revoked, the entire thing reversed. There were others there who tried to tie the idea of a new deal to a second referendum. They said, you know what, Mr. Johnson, I will vote for your deal that you come back from Brussels with if you promise to then put it to a second referendum. Of course, that's not something he's prepared to do. And then you have the SNP, the third largest party in that chamber, the Scottish National Party, saying they want a general election as soon as possible. They're asking the other parties to unite with them to make that possible. And that would mean a vote of no confidence in the Prime Minister, a potential caretaker government briefly to take the country to an election. So still a deadlock, uh, same situation that we've had for many weeks and months. Uh, I think what was interesting, though, in that conversation we saw in the chamber was an attempt to almost push back against this strategy of communication from Boris Johnson, railroading through some of the measures we've seen that were considered unlawful, but also in his language. And he was called out for the use of very strong language where MPs have been saying, well, hey, this polarising language has created uh, death threats. It's meant that we're being attacked in our own constituencies. And do you think that means at some point we will get a change in strategy strange in the communication from the Prime Minister. Clearly, based on what he did last night, he seems to think this works for him ahead of an election. You had female MP after female MP after female MP stand up, say, please stop using this incendiary language. In one occasion, he said, I've never heard so much humbug in my life. He knows that he is playing to a specific audience. This will serve him come election time. And it doesn't look, based on last night and yesterday afternoon, that he or his closest cabinet ministers are going to back away from that position. Uh, Kaylin, what are you thinking? What is your baseline scenario right now with what happens uh, with Brexit? I mean, it's very difficult to call, but, mm. but what is your baseline? Well, for us, I mean, the timeline is extremely muddled, and obviously everything hinges on October 31st, and at the moment it doesn't seem like any deal that is kind of arranged with Brussels is going to be voted on and approved through Parliament, which then raises the main question of what happens with the Ben Bill. Does the Prime Minister choose to respect it or not respect it? Not respecting it, we think, would obviously trigger um, this this general election that we're all kind of <laughs> feeling slightly nervous about and what that would really mean. So I think the question really is, when does the election occur? Uh, and for us, that's looking increasingly likely in the next in the next month and a half, just because there's no clear outcome and no one is backing down from their positions. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.